Hey, Mark Zuckerberg, as much as I hate to admit it, I enjoy Facebook, at least some of the time. But you can't have that word meta all to yourself. Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce, and this is A Bigger Story. As I got ready for the launch of A Bigger Story, I tried out an early version of what the podcast might sound like on my wife, Maureen. I was pretty bummed when she didn't give me like 10 thumbs up. Her concern when she heard it was that I was sounding too snarky, maybe too confrontational. And yeah, she was right. I love snark. This is at least the second episode where I've told you that I love snark. So it must be true because if you repeat something enough times, it's true, right? See that snark and it just comes really naturally for me. And I love satire, which is basically a sophisticated form of snark. Satire is a pretty effective way sometimes of presenting ideas. So why couldn't I be snarky and satirical? It worked for John Stewart, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah, Samantha Bee, Bill Maher. But what Maureen and I were both noticing is that there are some people in the area of progressive religion who've gotten a fair amount of traction by using snark and satire and hyperbole and ridicule. And would I like to get a fair amount of traction with a bigger story? Absolutely. Do I think I could pull off the clever, snarky, call out the religious knuckleheads approach? Honestly, oh yeah. The thing is, we have a serious problem of division in our world today. At least we do in the U.S. where I live. And as self-satisfying as it might be for me to do the whole snarky, satirical, hot take kind of thing, if we all did that, and people who share opposite points of view are doing that too, how do we ever change each other's minds? How do we learn what we need to learn from someone who has a very different worldview than we do? If we never do the harder work of building relationships, of building trust, if we never approach a conversation with the idea that if we want to change somebody else's mind, that we might actually want to attract them into a conversation with us. I think if what we do is just keep using social media megaphones to shout at each other about how stupid we think the other person is, it might help us to blow off a little steam. It works for me. I bet it's worked for you. But I don't think we achieve what we really hope for. I mean, I think we'd like to dial down the division in our society, right? And find some common threads, some cohesiveness as a society, somehow, somewhere. Because it feels some days like it's all ready to explode. I'm recording this particular episode on a Monday, and there are two things that happened over our weekend. First, it was an unusually warm late October day on Saturday. Late October in the Chicago area is usually gray and cool, high 40s to low 50s Fahrenheit. Saturday here was in the 70s, and there's a great brewery near us with outdoor seating in the good weather. So we decided to head over Saturday afternoon in the 70-degree weather, have a beer or two, soak in the sunshine. And the really cool part was that we ran into some friends, a husband and wife, whom we love, admire, and hadn't seen in several years. These are two people who are as high-impact leaders as we know. So we sat together, caught up on each other's lives, and we talked about all sorts of things, including church. 
because it was at church where we first met. And notice how our language betrays us. I said at church as if church was a place, a location, a building. And we know, right, that that's not what church is really supposed to be. We'll do another episode on that one. And our friends are still currently active in a church community. And one of the things that we were talking about together was the steady, undeniable decline in the numbers of people who go to church, air quotes around go to church, who are part of a church. And one of them said, yeah, you know, we need to figure out ways to get people back to church. I winced a little bit, and I shared that I didn't think that that was going to happen, that the trend lines were clear long before the pandemic hit, and the pandemic only accelerated a bit what was already happening, and the bottom line is that people aren't coming back. So that was Saturday. Fast forward a little bit to Monday. I'm up early. I open up my laptop, getting ready to record this episode. And there's a Facebook post from someone who I think is one of the better thinkers about church life out there. And he posted on Facebook, what is going to get people to come back to church? Same question as we batted around with our friends at the brewery on Saturday. And at the brewery, our conversation led to this, that how are we going to get people back to church isn't even the right question. I am not anti-church, by the way. But if a church does want to be viable, vital, filled with life, it's not going to be because the people in that church asked, how do we get people to come back, back to the building for a service on a Sunday? It's going to be because some group of people asked not about how do we get people to come back to us, but instead, how do we go forward to where people are. The crazy thing about it is if Christians are Christians because they are in some way devoted or centered on Jesus Christ as a visible, as the visible revelation of God in human form, that might involve noticing what Jesus Christ did and doing some more of that. I read about Jesus in the Christian scriptures a lot. When you're a priest or minister or pastor or preacher, whatever we're called, and you're giving a sermon pretty much every Sunday, you read and attempt to understand those Jesus stories. And here's what I've learned reading those stories over and over and over again. Jesus never built a building and said, y'all come. There was no pipe organ, no choir, no stained glass or raised pulpit, no elaborate vestments, or no rock bands and smoke machines and projectors and video. I'm not against any of those things. In fact, I like some of that stuff. In another episode, we'll talk about the deep importance of ritual and symbol in a community, for community. But however much I may like those things, Jesus Never did he ever build a structure and say, meet me here once a week, and then we'll go out for brunch. He went out. He went forward to people where people were, especially to where people were struggling and suffering. And you might be nodding your head vigorously right now. You might be thinking, well, duh, Bruce, that's exactly why my eyes glazed over and I checked out a long time ago from church stuff. And let's say it's our kids. However put off they've become by institutional religion, trust me, they've read the Bible and they know. So folks 
aren't going back. So however difficult that message is, and it's disputable too, I don't claim perfect knowledge, but I think that the statistics bear it out. Folks aren't going back. So back to the brewery with our friends. Uh, They also asked what I was up to since I left my work as the pastor of Riverside Church in Jacksonville, Florida, back in May of 2022. And I told them that what I was up to was this podcast, and not just the podcast, but the community that we hope grows around this notion of a bigger story. And I appreciate those conversations so much because it helps me get clearer on why a bigger story, this podcast and the community that we grow up around it, why it is potentially important and valuable. I mean, why do we want people of certain religious and spiritual perspectives, and not only Christians, by the way, why would we want them to take themselves forward to where the rest of us are? Well, there's a whole list of good reasons. In this episode, we'll zero in on just one of them, and it's this. I think we can help heal or bridge, or at least begin to reframe some of the deep divisions that are tearing our society apart right now. Communities of faith for millennia have provided common stories in a society, common stories that help frame and support common sets of values, ethics. The healthiest, best communities of faith throughout human history have told stories that lead to values and ethics of love, neighbor love, love and stewardship of creation of the planet, provision of legitimate needs for all like food, clean water, shelter, fairness and justice, forgiveness when necessary, reconciliation following disputes, a bias, a strong bias toward peaceful coexistence and wholeness. Faith communities, communities of faith, have typically been the communities that help provide these common threads. Whole worlds, whole cultures have been created and fed around these stories. These stories are called meta-narratives. Yes, meta existed as a thing long before Mark Zuckerberg trademarked it and renamed his company with it, so I want to reclaim it back a little bit. A meta-narrative is an overarching story or set of stories that provide the patterns and structures of beliefs, ethics, values, meaning for a society of people. The Hebrew scriptures provided a meta-narrative for Jewish people, still do. Christians call the Hebrew scriptures the Old Testament and then also have a New Testament and develop their meta-narrative from those two collections of sacred writings together. And most Christians, unfortunately, at least I think it's unfortunate, do not have the same meta-narrative from the Hebrew scriptures as Jews do, even if Christians think they do. And to be fair, there are different strands of Judaism don't all get the same meta-narrative from the Hebrew scriptures. And Christians have fragmented into so many tribes that if you were to put three Christians in a room together, you'll hear at least four different overarching stories of what Christianity is and what it means and what the values and ethics are that derive from it. Is it about personal salvation, being a good person, being forgiven by Jesus when we're not a good person, being changed by that forgiveness, transformed by it somehow, amazing grace, and emerging from our mistakes 
as the good person we'd hope to be and ultimately going to heaven, pie in the sky and the great by and by when we die? Or is the Christian meta-narrative, the overarching story about love, forgiveness, reconciliation, justice, and mercy within community so that there can be ever greater communal thriving and flourishing? Is the meta-narrative one of those? Some of both? Are there others? Is the Christian meta-narrative about justice and provision specifically for marginalized, oppressed, unjustly treated people? Is it about opposition to those who do the oppressing? And after you work through questions like that, then we get confronted by the possibility, the reality that the overarching story, the meta-narrative, has been co-opted by the ones with power in a society and used as a further tool to advance their own power and as a tool of oppression and injustice. As one stark example, there was a period of time in U.S. history when Southern white U.S. Christians preached that slavery was supported by the Bible. And that conflation with Christian meta-narrative and political narrative results in Christian nationalism, this notion, among other things, that one nation more than others has most favored nation status in the eyes of God, or sometimes even that one political figure is especially anointed and sent by God. And as this has happened more and more, and as we become more of a global society, more aware of the diversity of these different overarching narratives, one result has been the rejection of those overarching stories, those meta-narratives as being good and useful in favor of more micro-narratives specific to different cultures within cultures, micro-narratives, or alternative counter-narratives. Richard Rohr calls this process order, disorder, reorder. And here's the challenge. It's just the reality that societies at different points in their history have to go through these processes of disordering old orders and then doing some reordering. And as we've done that, it's revealed a big weakness in our society, at least here in the U.S. And it's this, we don't know how to find unity amidst multiple narratives, amidst multiple stories, amidst multiple truths. How do you find unity? How do you heal division? How do you arrive even at just basic understandings of what constitutes the common good in a post-truth society? Those are central questions, and we have to ask those questions and at least try to arrive at at least some tentative answers. And that's what we're trying to do with a bigger story. Is it possible that people who live by diverse narratives, by different scripts, could come to understand their scripts, their stories, their narratives, as still somehow part of a bigger story, and in the process come to deeper understandings of each other's stories, deeper understandings of the legitimate needs that get expressed when different people develop their own scripts and stories and narratives, and a deeper understanding of what might be illegitimate needs that are being sought after. I think that actually is the bigger story that we need in our world right now. To quote one of my favorite poets, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world can live as one. 
Thanks for listening. Stay in touch. Send your questions and input to Bruce at brucecole.tv. A new episode drops every Monday through Friday. Remember you are loved.